Hello, everybody. Welcome once again as we continue our study through the New Testament and uh, in particular through the book of Luke. We are going to be in Luke chapter 21 tonight, which is a very interesting chapter, has a uh, has a lot to say. And uh, if you've read it ahead of time, you know what I'm talking about. If not, you'll you'll hear in a minute. Remember, we've been talking about in uh, these last couple of chapters in Luke 19 and Luke 20, um, Jesus talking about the cost. First, uh, he talked about the cost of being a disciple, which in, in reality, the cost compared to the gain is makes it. I mean, you know, the, the cost is negligible. Um, you know, we, we end up um, f- sort of realizing that the true cost of being a disciple is obedience. And that that's that's the whole deal is us learning to be obedient and everything that goes along with that. That's discipleship. That's what it that's the journey we're all on is uh, is learning to do the next right thing, which we talk about. And, uh, and trying to do the next right thing and, and being involved in the process and knowing that we mess up sometimes and when we do learning from it and then asking God to forgive us and doing the next right thing. And that hopefully we, we start stringing together more of the next right things than the not so next right things. And that's the process of life. And pretty much that's what Jesus covered as far as the cost of being a disciple. That's what it looks like. We're not going to do everything that the world does. We're, we're not going to always think that the culture has it all together. We're going to live for God um, and and yet the reward is, you know, the old joke. The reward is out of this world. So, uh, uh, and that's that's the way that goes. And then um, he he begins to talk uh, in in the last chapter about the cost of rejecting Jesus, and it's a tragedy to reject Jesus is an absolute tragedy. And yet people choose to do that ultimately because rather than submit to and obey the authority of God. They want to be their own authorities or set their own authorities in place, whichever, whichever one. It's the same thing. It's a, ultimately a, a fist in the air that says, I will be my own God. And um, the, the result of that decision is tragic, as we have discussed. Luke 21 will pick up with a, a, a little more um, about that discussion. Of uh, sort of, he left, We left the last chapter and he was really letting the Pharisees have it on the way out, and he will sort of continue with a little illustration of the first four or five verses. And then the rest of the chapter is a discussion about um, the kingdom of God and uh, ultimately when everything gets put right, what it looks like, and what the questions uh, that people have are all about. And the disciples have a lot of questions. And, and in mind, keep this, that, that and we'll talk about this some more because that's the discussion point for today, Remember that the disciples, as the nation of Israel as well, have in their minds, in their, their paradigm, what they're looking for, what they're expecting in their Messiah, is that Messiah will return and that he's going to restore the fortunes of Israel. And that, that it will be a, a restoration of the kingdom of Israel back to the times of David and Solomon, when they were the top nation in the known world. And that this is how they read the promises, this is what they're expecting, and and this is their thought process. And the disciples who have placed their faith in Jesus and who understand him to be the Messiah 
still are dealing from that paradigm. And they, they just can't get this cross talk that Jesus keeps bringing up. Because he's preparing them and they, they just... You know how, have you ever, and, and maybe you can relate to that, have you ever had an idea about something and someone has put up different ideas and you just don't want to hear it? And so you just kind of, that's what they're doing. And, and he, he has been hitting them with this information they can't deal with and, and now he's going to give them even more stuff and it's, it's mind-boggling to them. Luke 21 uh, is really very, very similar to Matthew 24 and 25. It's the same discussion being recorded um, this time by Luke for us. But it's the exact same event that took place in Matthew 24 and 25. And so let's, uh, with that in mind, let's look at Luke 21. Uh, it's 38 verses. I will read them to you. And then uh, we'll talk about them a little bit. <laughs> That's the last place I'd expect to find them. Okay. Imagine my surprise. <laughs> okay. What an old joke fell out. Just to establish some parameters, said the professor. Mr. Tarr, what is the opposite of joy? Sadness, said the student. And the opposite of depression, Ms. Helms? Elation. And you, Mr. Fields, how about the opposite of woe? I believe that would be giddy up. I didn't say it was good. It just fell out of the Bible. It was a sign. Don't, don't boo me. It fell out of the Bible. Just trying to be obedient. <laughs> okay. Luke 21, verses 1 through 38. As he looked up, Jesus saw the rich putting their gifts into the temple treasury. He also saw a, uh, saw a poor widow put in two very small copper coins. I tell you the truth, he said, this poor widow has put in more than all the others. All these people gave their gifts out of their wealth, but she out of her poverty put in all she had to live on. Some of his disciples were remarking about how the temple was adorned with beautiful stones, and with gifts dedicated to God. But Jesus said, As for what you see here, the time will come when not one stone will be left on another. Every one of them will be thrown down. Teacher, they asked, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign that they are about to take place? That's the big question. It's the same question basically in Matthew 24 and 25 that Jesus answers. And he replies... Watch out that you're not deceived. For many will come in my name claiming I am he and the time is near. Do not follow them. When you hear of wars and revolutions, do not be frightened. These things must happen first, but the end will not come right away. Then he said to him, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes, famines, and pestilences in various places, and fearful events and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will lay hands on you and persecute you. They will deliver you to synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors, and all on account of my name. This will result in your being witnesses to them. 
But make up your mind not to worry beforehand how you will defend yourselves. For I will give you words and wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict. You'll be betrayed even by parents, brothers, relatives, and friends. And they will put some of you to death. All men will hate you because of me. But not a hair of your head will perish. By standing firm, you will gain life. When you see Jerusalem being surrounded by armies, you will know that its desolation is near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, let those in the city get out, and let those in the country not enter the city. For this is the time of punishment and fulfillment of all that has been written. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. There will be great distress in the land and wrath against this people. They will fall by the sword and will be taken as prisoners to all the nations. Jerusalem will be trampled on by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled. There will be signs in the sun, moon, and stars. On the earth, nations will be in anguish and perplexity at the roaring and tossing of the sea. Men will faint from terror, apprehensive of what is coming on the world, for the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. When these things begin to take place, stand up and lift up your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. He told them this parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. When they sprout leaves, you can see for yourselves and know that summer is near. Even so, when you see these things happening, you know that the kingdom of God is near. I tell you the truth. This generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Be careful, or your hearts will be weighed down with dissipation, drunkenness, and the anxieties of life. And that day will close on you unexpectedly like a trap. For it will come upon all those who live on the face of the whole earth. Be always on the watch and pray that you may be able to escape all that is about to happen. And that you may be able to stand before the Son of Man. Each day Jesus was teaching at the temple and each evening he went out to spend the night on the hill called the Mount of Olives. And all the people came early in the morning to hear him at the temple. And blessed be the word of God. Really, I don't think any of that needs explaining, does it? Yeah, okay. Let's call it a night. <laughs> the Olivet Discourse, because he was hanging out in the Mount of Olives. This was his discussion with his disciples, based on the question. But as the chapter starts, we're, we're really finishing Luke chapter 20. In the beginning of 21, and uh, the, 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 the story of the widow and her coins is a tie-in to how the Pharisees, um, at the end of Luke chapter 20, were... were um, uh, beware, I'll read it to you. Beware of the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and love to be greeted in the marketplace and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. Such men will be punished most severely. And then he goes on and talks about the widow's offering. And, and he's connecting the two um, because, remember last week we talked about the fact that the, the Pharisees and the, the rulers of the people of Israel had exchanged life with God for their position in power and their stuff. And that they had learned to be very flexible, these people, in working with uh, the Romans. 
and in maintaining their own stature. And in so doing, they'd stop representing God altogether and were just trying to hang on to their own thing. That's what's happening. And, and yet they liked their position, they liked their prestige, they liked the way that they were greeted, um, they had these positions of honor. And, and, and ultimately, the problem is that when Jesus came to set everything right, rather than follow, and see, they were, again, just like the disciples had a paradigm of what they were looking for in a Messiah, the rulers had a, a paradigm as well that, that they were able to back on, that, but they also didn't want to change. To follow Christ would have meant that a great change for them. And it was an unwillingness to change and to follow God that becomes the big problem. So they like to appear a certain way, but they didn't want to do what it really took to live that way. And that's, again, one of those struggles we have to be careful of in our own lives. A lot of people like to appear as though they're, they're really sort of following after God, but, but only to a point, see? The appearance is what they do, but they don't follow it through. And they don't live it out because that requires obedience. And at some points, they don't want to do that. They want to do what they want to do. And, and yet, they want to look a certain way. And so this is the struggle, and it's everybody's struggle. I mean, this is, this is life. But the Pharisees had really taken it to a point where, you know, they were just trying to kill Jesus. So this was the final struggle. When the widow comes and gives all that she has, she, she's, what she is a picture of is someone who would rather have God than anything else. She would rather go after God with everything than settle for anything else. And she's the exact opposite of the Pharisees who would like to appear like they're following God, but they want all their stuff intact. And it's all really about them. And that's the big difference in the story and what he's getting to in that part of the process. That's the, that's the big picture that's painted there and is a picture we all need to be aware of. It's a very important thing. That, that to be a disciple, to follow after God, uh, it, it means that the cost is obedience. And, and that's, that's what we're trying to do. None of us has it all together and we're all going to struggle with our own religious stuff and with our messes and, but, but it's a willingness that says, you know what? When it gets right down to it, I'd rather have God than anything. And that's the heart of a disciple. I'd rather go Jesus' way than any other way. I'd rather do it his way. That, that, that's the heart of it. Will we struggle along the way? Sure we will. Um, that's life. That's us dealing with our sinful nature. That's us going through the process of sanctification, allowing the Holy Spirit to work in us, to change us, and, and learning what holiness means and 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 so many people settle for a surface holiness and and yet the holiness of god is 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 all about love and and if if love isn't at the heart of of holiness it's become self-righteous and it's not holiness it's different it's fake it's pharisaical it's what they were dealing with they looked right they weren't right confronted with their messiah they choose to kill him that's the deal. Look good, but not do the right thing. They don't want to do it. So the widow shows them all up and because uh, she does the right thing. She gives what she, she just wants God. And she's willing to give him whatever it takes. So that's how that verse starts. Now, so, but these, these people that look good, they're, they're pumping in bunches of money into the temple treasury. And it's taking care of the Pharisees. And they're spending some of it to make the temple look good. And uh, the disciples, you know, spend a lot of time out in the countryside. They come to the temple and they're like, man, this looks pretty good. 
You know, it's well adorned, it's well taken care of, it's fancy looking. And that's their comments. This is really something, you know. The craftsmanship is all good. And Jesus looks at it, see, because it's, a, it's not coming from the right heart. It's, a, it's like an idol. It's a big mess. It's a big, you know, he's already had to clean it out once because they had totally... So it's, he's like, you know what? This thing, what you see now is so not the deal that it won't even be here in a little while. There won't be stone unturned on it. And he launches into... This, this statement brings up a question from the disciples um, in verse 7. It says, Teacher, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign that they are about to take place? And in Luke 21, just in Matthew 24 and 25, there's a, um, a fairly immediate um, thing that will happen in response to this passage, and then there's a long-term one, as it is with a lot of prophetic stuff. There's sort of an immediate thing that's about to happen very soon, and then there's something down the road for meaning as well. And, and the immediate part of it, within 20 or 30 years, the temple's destroyed overcome, overtaken, pretty much all of that nasty stuff happens that's going to happen. And yet, Jesus hasn't returned yet. So there's a future um, part to the prophecy as well, and that's the part we're in now. But, but that's what happened. And, and so um, the question that the disciples raise is, is ultimately uh, stemming from this paradigm that I talked about when we started, in that they've... They've been, they know who Jesus is. He, they pointed it out. You're the Christ. You're the Messiah. You're the Son of God. You're the one we're waiting for. And, and Jesus said, you got it right. And it wasn't even you. It was God who told you that. They know who he is. They put their faith in him. But I said again, they're expecting him to set up a kingdom a, 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 on earth, a political kingdom right then. And this story that he keeps telling them about the cross and death isn't fitting at all. And so they've pretty much checked it out. But he's trying to tell them now that there's, there's this thing, that this is going to happen, and, and he's, he's, they'll get it later on, that he's preparing them for this time between when he sets up the kingdom and when he comes back to bring it to consummation. Now, I brought that up a little bit on Sunday. Let's talk about it, and because it's good theology for you to know and to think about and to understand, and terminology is important in there, is the now and the not yet. When we talk about the kingdom of God, you need to just think about the now and the not yet. Because it's very helpful in figuring out how this works. Remember the kingdom, and he talks about the kingdom of God being near. Well, you'll know it's coming. It's about to come back. Um, always means his rule and his reign. It's not a place. We keep thinking, often people think of the kingdom of God as a geographical place. It's not. It's always about his rule and his reign. And if you look at every scripture where it's in, it makes sense. And so his, his right to govern, if you would, his, his right to rule, his rule and his reign, his authority. And when he came the first time, he inaugurated it because he said, the kingdom is here. The kingdom is upon you. But then there's a lot of scriptures that say the kingdom is coming. And, it's, and the parables all point to the fact that the kingdom is here, but not fully here. So his rule and his reign is here because of his first coming, but it's not fully here. It'll be fully here when he comes back a second time. So just... That, that concept should make sense. You, we all know we're waiting for his return. All right. The kingdom is here, but not fully here. And, and it's coming. And when he comes, he's going to set everything back right. Everything gets established the way it's supposed to be, the way it was, the way it's returning to. All that happens when he comes back. We live in this tension. The, the, he's come, but it's not fully come. The now and the not yet. 
Um, and, and I told you when we, we looked at our daily bread last week um, that that verse can be translated, give us today the bread of tomorrow. Totally reasonable translation. And has a slightly different meaning than its other meaning, which is give us today our daily bread, which it also means. But it also can be translated, give us today the bread of tomorrow. And that, to me, that's a kingdom concept that, that approaches God with this in this way, in faith, and allows us to pray in great faith, God, when you come back, Jesus, when you come, you're going to set everything right. I know when you come that, that the kingdom will be here fully and everything will be right. And so, Lord, I'm asking that, that you would give me what you're going to do then, today. I'm asking for the bread of tomorrow, today. And the kingdom of God breaks through into today. It does. Not all the time, but it does. And we're, uh, in Hebrews, it talks about getting a taste. We, we get a taste of the kingdom. It, and, and, and so we get touches, we get, we get these movements in because God's involved and he's very active, but he's not fully here. Because sometimes people say, well, how come he doesn't do everything? He's not, it's not fully here yet and it's a broken world. Things happen that we don't always understand, but we're to pray in faith for God to move on stuff. When people are sick, we pray for them to be healed. When people are struggling, we ask God to move into it. We ask for all those things because they're the promises that we have that will be fully established when he returns. But we ask in faith today for the bread of tomorrow. Okay, so this is the tension of the kingdom. And he's trying to explain this to his disciples in ways that they'll grasp over time. But right now, all they want to hear about is the kingdom now. They want, they want a restoration. They've kind of been hanging out for the last three years with in mind, you know, the argument of who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom is that it's a literal physical kingdom. And they're the, after Jesus, they're the top 12 guys. And they're pretty excited about it. Because, you know, most of them were fishing just a couple of years ago. That's a pretty good deal, you know what I mean? Nothing against fishermen, tax collectors, all, all great folks, but pretty big status to think, you know, all of a sudden you're replacing Rome and Caesar and the senators and it's Jesus and the twelve of you. All right, got a few things I want to change around here. <laughs> and Jesus keeps saying, no, I've got to go to the cross. It's not going to work out quite that way. And they don't like that at all. What are you talking about? I gotta go do this. So, things have to change. And, and so he begins this discussion of what's gonna take place in the time that he leaves. Now some of these are fulfilled within the first 30 years. I like to talk about, but there's also a future, a prophetic, um, um, take on the Olivet Discourse as well. And so the picture there in Luke is this picture of uh, and in Matthew as well, this increasing tension um, that that is increasing um, uh, until he returns. And there's wars and there's rumors of wars and there's earthquakes and, and there's an increasing wickedness and, and persecution of Jesus' followers uh, uh, are involved. And, and these things have been in place since the time of Christ, um, but they increase over time. And the picture is sort of like um, labor pains. That that um, I, I never had a baby, so I, I don't I don't really like using the discussion. I've been in, I've been around when both my kids were born. I was in the room, and and I said that this, and I, it, it looked really painful. I mean, there's, there's no doubt that, it, and it got worse as we got further along in the process. And um, uh, my wife, we, we, I don't know why at the time they were, we were doing everything natural then, you know what I mean? And so, like, breathing was, they've moved past that again now, and they, they hook them up in the back, and they don't feel all of that, but, 
when, when we had our kids 20 some years ago. Oh, just breathe. Bad plan. <laughs> Guys, have you ever tried that when you're hurting or something? It don't work. Really? So anyway, I've, I've gotten off track again. Oh, and I found another pair of glasses. Those are the ones I was looking for right here. Birth pain. So, they increase as the event comes to a climax. When, when the big event, so the pains are coming, you know, five minutes, four minutes, three minutes, two minutes. All right. So, in, in the world, as we're waiting, there's going to be an increase in these things, and they're going to happen more and more frequently. And, and um, it's happening. I mean, these things happen. Everything that's described there happens, except for the big changes in the sky. And that we haven't seen yet. Um, I, don't, I don't believe we've seen. Although some sort of missile went off California today, but that wasn't it. <laughs> and if you haven't seen that, don't let me bring that up, okay? But uh, I happen to see that on the Internet. Huh. Never mind. Um, Back into the thing here. So, Jesus is painting this picture. And, and in the Old Testament, um, this worldwide trouble uh, had names like the time of Jacob's trouble, that day, the day of the Lord, tribulation. And um, as Jesus paints this picture against an Old Testament sort of backdrop, they're going to start picking up what he's talking about. And, and so they, they get the problems are coming, but they want to know when will this be. And... Um, Jesus points to these signs that are going to take place, but he leaves them primarily with be on the watch. Just be alert. Now, why that's important is this, and, and it gets tied into other places of Scripture, and I want to do it real quick, and we've done it in length before, but, uh, but I want to tie this in real quick. There's this, this marriage process in Israel that's pretty fascinating. And it's very in-depth. I'm not going to go through it all. And I can tie it into communion, which I've done. There's all these things that happen. But, but at the Last Supper, there's, there's actually sort of this proposal by Jesus to the disciples as representatives of the church. And, and um, on taking that cup, it's a, it's a, it's a yes. And the, the, the ceremony that it refers to is um, um, in, in Israel when a, a young man saw a young woman that he thought would make a fine wife, um, and uh, he would go to the home uh, of the young woman, and he would talk to the parents, and he would plead his case as to why he would be a good husband for their daughter, and he usually had to do with what he had and what he could do and all those other things, and they would decide, first off, it had to go well with the, with the dads, and uh, just like I did with Paul. And, and uh, he looked at him, he's like, what? Someday you should ask Paul about the discussion we had before I let him take my daughter out. It was pretty interesting. Now, <laughs> um, <laughs> you, could, you could ask Fran, too, about the discussion I had with him before he started to date Georgina. <laughs> I think I talked to Barry, too. I did. <laughs> before. Uh, anyway, I'm off track. Now, um, the, so the young man would show up and he would plead his case. And if the parents accepted him, it went on to the daughter. And um, the, 
the daughter would come into the room. Now, the daughter had to use her intuition because she had an up or down vote on this deal. And um, it would have to be made pretty quickly. And that's God gives women intuition for these sort of decisions. And um, what the young man would do that he would he would come prepared with a flask of his own wine and a, and a glass. And he would set the glass down if the parents had okayed him. And he would pour some of his wine into this glass and set it on the table. The young woman, if she intuitively felt that this man would be a fine match for her, she would pick up the glass and she would drink from it. And they were betrothed. That was the deal. If she didn't want any part of it, she just wouldn't take the glass. Everybody knew what that meant. And there you go. So, so tie it back into communion. When they drank from that cup, it was a yes. What would happen immediately at that point is that the young man would go to prepare a place for them. And um, because of the way they lived, it would be he would go and prepare a place in his father's house. And the, the young man would begin to, uh, and, and basically what they did back then, and if you've ever been to some third world countries, you see it still happens today. They would just build on to the existing house. Whatever part of the family was being added would build their own part of the house onto the existing house. And so the young man would go, and he would begin to prepare a place for his bride. Any of this sound biblical to you? And um, the thing was, was that because the young man would, would want to go and get his bride quickly, he might not have done a very good job building the house. Most guys would pitch a tent and say, okay, honey, we're ready. Come on. Get their wives. And, and so it was the groom's father who determined when the place was ready. So only the father would know when the son could go for his bride. So that's one side of it. Sound like another story? Jesus has gone to prepare a place for you, his bride. And only the father knows the date, time, and the hour when he comes back because he's busy preparing a place. That's what he's been doing for this time. A couple thousand years, this is going to be a really cool place. Okay. On the other side, the bride would be on the watch the whole time. She would be alert. And there's stories about um, brides not being alert and brides that are alert in, in the process and that they, they wouldn't want to miss the groom's return and so they'd be ready. They'd be ready for, their, for the return of their prospective groom. It was a big deal. Trumpet sound and celebration and then a big party would break out. So the ultimate picture is, look, it's, it's coming. This, the, the end's coming, but it's a good thing for believers. We never have to be afraid about the end because it's, it's in the book. I mean, you read the book, there's an end. I mean, it's, it's coming, all right? But you never need to be afraid. When people get all afraid about weird stuff, 2012, all that other stuff, nobody knows the date, the time, and the hour anyway, including the Mayans. And even if it happened to be the end, good. I mean, it's what we're waiting for. We're waiting for his return, and it's going to get funny before he comes. But it's all good. It's glorious. Because he's coming back for his bride, and that's what we're waiting for. And that's what he's trying to tell his disciples. And when he comes, everything gets straightened out. And all this mess finally gets dealt with. Now, the, the generation that Jesus is speaking of, um, um, had the, the, the people were there witnessed the destruction of the temple. But, but when you sort of put all the verses together, what I believe is the, the generation that witnesses these big changes in the sky, that means he's almost upon us. Get ready, because he's coming. And, and if you witness that, chances are you're going to see the establishment, the, the consummation of the kingdom and, and what it looks like, his rule and his reign being set up here uh, in the process which is pretty cool stuff. And so all this is sort of future talk. And, and the ultimate question then is what we're supposed to do till he comes. And we're to watch, we're to be alert, and we're to live like he's coming today 
while living like he still me might be a little while off. I love this quote. This is from C.S. Lewis. And it says this. He says, The world might stop in ten minutes. Meanwhile, we're to go on doing our duty. The great thing is to be found at one's post as a child of God, living each day as though it were our last, but planning as though our world might last a hundred years. That's the exact tension that we're supposed to live in. Very well put. That's why he was C.S. Lewis. <laughs> he could put stuff like that. So that's how we're to live. That's what he's telling the disciples. And uh, um, we'll pick it up in verse 22 next week. And we get into the betrayal and the Last Supper and uh, some pretty fascinating stuff. Heading quickly to the end of Luke. Uh, just a few more chapters. So we'll finish it there. If somebody upstairs to turn off the recording, please turn off the recording. Let me know that you're there. Thank you. If you're watching in Williston, God bless you guys. If you're watching on the Internet, anything we do, call us, write us. Let us know there's somebody up there, Barry. It's good. And uh, we'll finish here.